Welcome to Uncharted Careers. I'm Courtney Hartman, and I talk with guests each week about their career paths to give listeners an insider look into different industries, how folks have made decisions in their careers, and we'll explore what each guest has learned along the way. I'm on a mission to share knowledge that is only learned in the field outside of a classroom. Join me to find inspiration for your own career. I'm super excited to be joined by my friend Grace Edquist today. She and I have been friends since 2011 when we both studied abroad in Vienna, Austria. And she and I were lucky enough to be placed in probably the largest house I've ever lived in. We had this mansion in Vienna with an elevator and an extra floor that we didn't know what to do with. And there were other people in our program that were just in college dorms. And somehow we got lucky enough to have that house, but also be placed together. And now she and I live close by in Brooklyn. And it's been really nice having her close and being able to hear a little bit about her career moves as she's navigated things since college. But publishing isn't a world that I'm super well versed in. So I'm really excited to learn more from you today, Grace. So thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Courtney. This is super fun, and it's fun to reflect on our non-professional history of being friends, but also I have always valued (laughs) career advice that you've given me, so it's exciting to be on your podcast today. Thanks. I appreciate that. Well, just to start off, can you tell me a little bit more about what your job is today and what the day-to-day looks like? Sure. So I work for the magazine publisher Condé Nast. And I have a dual role. So on the one side, I am the copy director for Vogue magazine in print. And I'm also the deputy to the global copy director, which I know is a mouthful. Uh, But basically, it means that I support my boss, who is the global copy director, in projects that relate to copy editing and workflow issues for magazines that Condé publishes around the world. Um, And then also just kind of for fun on the side, I also write for Vogue sometimes about art but that's less about my job and more about like I have access to do it. So I like to do it when I can. What does a typical day look like? Or I guess it might depend on the publishing cycle, but I'm curious, like what are your day-to-day tasks? Yeah. So you're right that it does depend on like where we're at with the publishing cycle for Vogue. So a print magazine cycle for me on the copy editing side is usually like two slow weeks a month and then two weeks busy a month and then kind of like, you know, half week in there of whatever, medium busy. But if we're not very busy, I'll have other projects I'm doing, especially for my deputy role. So I'm in like meetings, working on workflow issues, talking about ancillary tasks. We have a style guide that all of our magazines Mm -hmm. use. Um, But when we're editing the magazine, I get assigned stories once they're ready for the copy department. So me and a colleague will review every single story that goes into the print issue. We'll review it three times mm-hmm. um, between the two of us. So like if it's a story that I read first, she'll read it second. I'll read it for the final round. And we're just going through it with like a fine tooth comb, looking for grammar errors, spelling errors. Maybe a sentence is written in like kind of a clunky, unclear way. So we'll make suggestions for better wording. Sometimes I'll be like, oh, we've used this word like four times in this article. Like, let's think of some synonyms, things like that. And editing those stories Mm -hmm. is usually pretty quick. If it's a longer story, obviously it takes longer. But it's basically like as soon as it's ready for me and sent into my little queue, um, I'll jump on it and read it and then send it back for the next person to read. Um, 
and then I have meetings, you know, like we all do throughout the day. But I would say my job is like not Mm -hmm. super meeting heavy. I have maybe two meetings a day on average. Some days it's more, some days it's one or amazing, sometimes none. Um, So it kind of just depends, but that's the gist. Is it common for people in your world to have dual roles or, I mean, I know that you've been a Condé Nast for some years now. Did you just keep on evolving and taking on more responsibility over time or is it pretty common that people are taking on more than one role? I think it's the former. I think it's not super common. Basically, Mm -hmm. I work for a department called the Content Integrity Group, which is made up of fact checkers or we call them researchers, um, copy editors, the Condé Nast libraries housed within that department. And we are kind of a shared resource. So like I'm assigned to Vogue, but technically I work for this group called the Content Integrity Group. Most people Mm -hmm. within that department just have one job, but then because of the structure we have, like, you know, the, the, my boss who oversees all of copy editing at a certain point, I was like doing a lot of tasks that were kind of supporting her in her job, like serving as her deputy. And at a certain point I was like, should we formalize this? Because (laughs) this is a lot of extra work that I'm doing and I am happy to do it, but I should be, you know, compensated and my title should reflect it. So it was sort of a negotiation that happened uh, over the last like two years, I would say. And there's someone with an equivalent role on the research side. That person reports the global research director. He supports a lot of research tasks. But as far as I know, I don't think it is very common. Most people have like one job that encompasses a lot of things, but those would all fall under one job title. Yeah, that makes sense. And remind me, how long have you been at Condé Nast now? I've been there for six years. So almost your whole time while you've been in New York, you've been there? Yeah, I was at a company called Wanderlust for two and a half years, I would say, when I first moved here. And that was kind of my like New York starter job, moved here, was an editor at this uh, wellness yoga company called Wanderlust. They had a blog and then we started a magazine. We also started a podcast, actually. And I helped with kind of like all things editorial, basically. But I always knew I wanted to work at more of an established publishing house within like media and journalism. So after not very long at all at Wanderlust, I was already looking for new jobs and like trying to get to someplace like Condé Nast. And then once I landed there, um, my job has changed a lot in those six years, but I've had this Vogue job for like a year and a half and I've had the deputy job for about a year. Did you always know that you wanted to be in publishing? I feel like this is an industry that you've always been really drawn to, and it seemed like it was always part of your destiny. But I'm curious what your journey was like to even validate and to get to this world and this industry. Yes, I actually can say with a fair amount of confidence that I did know I wanted to work within at least journalism starting Mm -hmm. probably in like later high school and definitely by the time I was ready for college, I was like, I know I'm going to major in journalism. I think Mm -hmm. that clarity came from the fact that my mother was a journalist. So I like, I knew it was a career that someone could have. I knew that it was a job where you could just talk to people for a living. And that sounded really fun to me and interesting. And I would say that it was not at all her influence in terms of telling me to do it ever. In fact, it was the opposite. She was like, not thrilled. (laughs) 
when I told her I wanted to pursue journalism, I think because the industry, as everybody knows, has gone through a lot of turmoil in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, but yeah. I knew I wanted to do journalism because I like talking to people. I liked writing. I was good at it. And it felt like an industry that could take the act of like writing and culture and learning and turn it into this profession. So I always thought that that was kind of a fun mix of things. What I wasn't totally sure about was like what kind of job within the journalism industry I would want. So when I was in college, I studied journalism, but every year slash every semester, I like dabbled in a different kind. So like I wrote for the newspaper, I wrote for the arts section. I was an intern on kind of a nonprofit communications side working for the Nature Conservancy I interned for Madison Magazine, which was like the local city magazine. And it really kind of hit my stride. I would say once I landed at Madison Magazine, I was like, this is what I love. I love magazines. They're this like, I think Stanley Tucci says it perfectly in (laughs) one of my very favorite movies, The Devil Wears Prada. He says that they're like (laughs) this beacon of culture. And that is what a magazine is to me is it's like from front to back, You get short little slices of life, depending on the kind of magazine it is. You talk Mm -hmm. about politics, you talk about arts, you talk about um, anything there is to like be a human in this world. And I liked that mix, plus the lengthier deadline versus a newspaper. I am not someone who can handle daily Mm -hmm. churn, turn around. My mother worked for a newspaper and had daily deadlines. And she loved that. She loved that she would be done at the end of the day. She'd file her copy. She'd get out of there and it was done. And I could totally see the appeal of that. However, for me, someone who likes to toil over every word, um, I felt more suited to magazine journalism. So once I decided on that, I felt pretty clear that magazine journalism was the industry for me. Yeah, I can understand that. I feel like there's so much inspiration in magazines. And I mean, we grew up in the 90s and we were surrounded by so much influence coming from magazines. And I, uh, I can understand what drew you to, to them and the inspiration and passion that you found in them. Totally. What do you like the most or what do you enjoy the most about the industry and what you're doing? I like that I do so many different things and I get a really interesting mix of exposure to various tasks from kind of a more like administrative managerial operations side. And that's a lot of the stuff I do on like strategy and workflow documents and like talking to people about how they do their jobs, how we can standardize that, make it consistent, make it efficient, et cetera. But then I also get to drill down into like the nitty gritty of grammar and kind of like word crafting, editing, things like that. So I have kind of like a left brain, right brain situation in any given day where I get to do sort of creative things, some more strategic things um, and exposure to people who have been in this industry for a long time and have such a wealth of knowledge to pass on. Like that was something that I was kind of craving when... I got to Condé Nast. I was like, I want to be in, in an institution where there are people who have been doing this for like 20 years and have mm-hmm. that much expertise to pass on. Yeah. I feel like it's tough, though, to balance the management side, the people management and the process improvement side of things, and also still being an individual contributor on your own. 
What has that been like taking on more of the manager tasks and incorporating them into your day? Um, It is a challenging balance. I would say, so the weird thing about how our department is structured is that, so I have a director title and I technically oversee someone who has a manager title, but I am more overseeing the work than the person. So Mm. that basically means like if a story comes in and either one of us could take it, I'm not really having to micromanage and delegate and tell her like, it's your turn, you take this, or I'm not looking over her work and reviewing her copy edits. So that frees me up a little bit to work on some of the more kind of task oriented managerial things on the other side. Um, That said, it is sort of an ongoing juggling act, right? In terms of I'm doing Mm -hmm. this for the next like hour, but then I have to turn to this task and I have to totally switch gears and like, help write a summary of an issue because we need like a little description for like the digital version or something like that. So there's a lot of like hats that you're constantly taking off and putting on. And that certainly can get exhausting. And it can be, I think, an example of how an industry that has gone through such change and turmoil, all of us are doing more with fewer resources and smaller Mm -hmm. teams And at a certain point, it's like, well, that's the trade-off, right? It's like, we all just have to do more and kind of make do. And it's not always ideal, that's for sure. I do things all the time and I'm like, how is this my job? (laughs) Um, But the truth is like, often there's just no one else to do it. And so it's like, well, it has to get done. So I think a lot of it is just making do. Yeah, and I'm sure Condé Nast is one of the better resource organizations in the, the world in publishing. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that sort of challenge, I think, is something that anyone in this field can probably expect. Totally. I think it, it totally applies across the industry. And I've, I have friends who are at other um, magazines or at other companies, and everybody says the same thing, right? It's just like we're all having to do more with less. And that's true at you know, broadcast news stations. It's true at digital news companies. It's true at like, you know, even just like the New York Times, it's true there too. It's true everywhere. So everyone's just like, well, happy to hang on to a job (laughs) at this point. It also keeps things interesting because you are taking on so many new tasks and things are moving quickly and you are consistently being challenged. And I'm sure that does help to at least keep things interesting. Totally. And you are learning a lot of new skills all the time because it's just like, well, I never thought I would have to learn. I remember at an old job um, when I was at Wanderlust, I had to figure out like paper weight, like paper stock weight. And I was like, I don't know how thick the paper should be in this magazine that we're going to (laughs) print, but I guess I'll learn. Um, And you know what? Like it was fun researching that. It felt a little insane that that was something I had to do. But there was no one else to do it. We wanted to make the magazine happen. So sometimes you find yourself in these like total rabbit holes on the internet. But it's also kind of fun. On the flip side, what has been your least favorite part about the industry or what you do or what have been the biggest challenges? I think there are a couple of things. Um, I'll start with kind of a more like macro level thing. It's been disheartening the way that social media and like influencer culture has become so important to the journalism world in the sense that when I was applying for jobs and I was looking at more writer editor jobs so often, even if they don't say it in the job listing, you know, it's like, they want you to have, you know, 
50,000 followers on Twitter or whatever. And that is not me. Like I do not have that. I, I have a Twitter account. I look at Twitter, I go on it. Um, fun fact, I even wrote my college thesis about Twitter back in 2012, but it's never been something that I've wanted. Uh, Yeah, it was, it was about information overload, which it's like, LOL to think about the fact that (laughs) 11 years later, anything about information overload, we knew nothing about information overload. It's like, it all, you know, it all all just gets more and more and more compounded over time. But anyway, Mm -hmm. I think there's been such an emphasis on the dissemination of news or content, I put air quotes around content for all of our listeners, Um, the dissemination of content over social media has become so important, understandably so, you know, you got to play the game that we're in, but it has become this unspoken part of the job that people are hired not only for their skill as a writer, their skill as an editor or both, but also for the reach that they have to an audience. And I didn't have that. And I felt pretty frustrated that I was possibly discounted for certain roles because of that lack. Um, I think some of that's changing. Also, I'm not looking for, I haven't been looking for full-time writer roles. I think it's more important for like writer roles because they're tweeting out articles they write. Um, But I do think that that has also influenced the editor side too, where sometimes at certain magazines or digital news places, they'll be like, well, we want to hire someone who's influential on Instagram or TikTok or whatever. And again, it's less about like, the journalism chops, but at the same time, I can't blame them because it's like that's where the culture is, that's where the audience is. Yeah. Um, so it's just it's more that like there are so many more levels. It goes back to our conversation of everybody's having to do more with less. We're also having to yeah. do more in more places, and mm-hmm. sometimes I'm like enough. You know, it's like I don't want to have to do all these different things at the same time. I just want to like do my job, write a piece, or edit a piece, or whatever. And not feel like I also need to be doing all of this unpaid extra work on like a social platform. So that's been a frustration with the industry. Another one, and this is maybe a little more specific to something like a Condé Nast. While I think a big publishing house like that does have a lot of resources and you can make a lot of connections and it can be really great for career growth. The frustrating other side of that is that it is like very deep, deep, deep in like a labyrinth of bureaucracy in terms of getting stuff done. So I work on a lot of tasks. This is more for like my deputy job. Um, I work on a lot of tasks where I need to figure out who is the editorial operations director for like GQ France. And that can be really difficult to figure out. It can be difficult to find that person. It can feel like there are layers of like approvals that you have to go through in order to get something done. Um, Again, understandable, but it can be frustrating when you want to just like complete a task or kick off a project or take something on, but it doesn't feel like you have as much agency because there are so many levels of seniors and executives and whatever who, you know, would have to sign off on things. But if I don't know who those people are and I don't know how to find them, uh, that can be a frustration. I think that's getting better been a big goal of the company and I'm involved in some of those projects to like make it better, but it still can be frustrating. Yeah. That's an interesting project to be a part of because that is like more of the foundation to grow more into the space where everybody is so interconnected. Mm -hmm. So that's awesome that you get to be a part of laying that groundwork. Yeah. 
I'm curious about the freelance writer side of things and the type of work that you also pick up on the side. Where are you finding those opportunities? So I I mostly write about visual art on the side and I get a lot of PR pitches. So like publicists will reach out to me over email saying like, hey, there's a show at this museum or this gallery. Um, Please consider it for coverage. If you want to check out some images, like here's a Dropbox folder with a bunch of images of the work. Um, The artist, if the artist is alive and willing, maybe they'll say, you know, they're open to interviews if if you want, things like that. So a lot of articles that I end up writing do come from a publicist's pitch and it's their job to like make it easier for someone like me to be like, Oh yeah, that is cool. You're helping me like get the images, connect me to the writer. Um, but then obviously it's all my own writing and take and content and things like that. Um, so that's one way that I get ideas. And because I don't write full time, honestly, I do rely on pitches like that because it's like, yeah, tell me what's going on. Like, it's nice to kind of just have it land in my inbox. At the same time, I get so many emails like that. And because I don't do it full time, that can also be a source of stress, just because Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'd love to write about all these things, but I just simply don't have the time. Um, But I also just sort of pay attention to like, what's going on. Um, I'll read in uh, the newspaper or magazines, or just online, like what shows are coming up, If I check something out and I'm like, oh, this looks really cool, I should write about it, then I'll just like pitch the culture editor at Vogue who I work with and tell her like, I'd love to write about this. It looks cool. And she's like, great, go for it. If I want to pitch um, something that's like outside of the Vogue wheelhouse, it becomes a little more involved if I don't have as much of a relationship with that editor. But usually I'm pitching people who like know me, I've worked with before, and I can give them the gist of like what I want to write if it's tied to an opening or something like that. So there's like a newsworthiness and I'll include any other kind of relevant information, but I would say it's a mix of things that come to me and things that I spot out in the wild. How are publicists finding you? Is it from your previous work or are you part of networks or yeah, how are they finding even your email address? I think it's a lot of like, yeah, they see their job is basically to pay attention, like who's writing for what outlets about what topic. So if like, if you're an arts publicist and you see like, oh, Grace Hedquist wrote about some gallery show for Vogue, you're like Googling Grace Hedquist. Um, And then I do have a personal website with the portfolio of a lot of my work. And I have, I used to have my like email on there. I actually took it off because I was like, I'm getting too many emails. (laughs) But now there's a form that like does come to my email. Um, I'm sure that there are there are like listservs that certain agencies can like sign up for. And I'm sure I'm on some sort of list. But I think it's also word of mouth. You know, someone knows someone. They're like, oh, do you have an email for so-and-so? That's how it works on the journalism side of it. Where like if I have a friend who's like, or not even a friend, but like I'm in freelance writer groups. And they'll be like, who has an editor contact at? Vogue. And I'll be like, I do. And then I'll, you know, it's like people helping each other out. I'm sure on the publicist side that exists too. So it, you know, that Gmail gets around (laughs) for for writers um, in general. I mean, that sounds awesome being paid to participate in the visual arts and write articles about it. If somebody's looking to break into that and they don't really have that experience yet, 
what sort of content do you consume to even learn about new um, new things that you could potentially write about? Um, that's a great question. I always – I've heard this a million times. So this is not an original thought, but like the best way to be a good writer is to be a good reader and to read a lot. So in order to know what's going on, like I read The New Yorker. I read The Goings On About Town. I check out New York Mag. They've got their like – see, do, watch, listen in the back of every issue. I read the Times, Arts and Leisure section. I am on Instagram a lot. And sometimes there are, you know, things surface on Instagram that are happening. I follow a lot of galleries. I follow a lot of artists. And if someone's looking to sort of break into art writing, I would tell them a couple of things. One, I do not have a degree in art history, but I do my homework. So like if I'm going to write about an artist and they tell me or I read that they were really influenced by like abstract expressionism. I'll be like, you know, let me read more about that. And there's so much information that any of us can find online about any topic in the world, including art movements and art history, that you can do enough research to sort of like get yourself there for if it's a short article, you don't have to be comprehensive, but you can understand the references. And over time you build up a set of knowledge that like helps you every time. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still learning so much. There's so much to learn. I mean, art history is so massive and you can never really master it in terms of knowing everything. Yeah. But what I've learned in the couple years that I've been doing it is that like, just the more art you see, the more art you read about, the more art movements you read about. I listen to podcasts. I listen to the great women artists podcast, which is great. Um, there are so many sources of information that if you just like kind of keep paying attention, you also pick up what you're interested in, what you like. And if you're writing about things that you like, I mean, if you're a critic, obviously it's a different thing because then you're, you know, I'm not a critic. I'm like a journalist who's writing about things. So I usually am coming at something because I already like it and I'm already interested in it. And that makes it easier to be like, well, I want to do extra reading and I want to do extra research because it's interesting to me. And that was always the goal for me is like, I want to write about something that I'm interested in and that I like spending time on because it is like a side gig. I'm not, I don't have to do it as part of my job. I want to do it. So why not make it something that like, I also enjoy learning more about aside from just the little, you know, writing bit that I is the end product. It's like the end product is one thing, but I get to learn so much just for my own personal (laughs) entertainment that for me, it's like that's enough of an added benefit to keep me doing it. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. As you think about your future career development and growth, are there specific goals that you have in mind for your career or potentially achievements that you're looking to accomplish within your professional development? I do. I would say like in in the there are a couple like little tiny things that I'm like, Oh, that would be great to do. Like I'd love to be published in the New Yorker at some point. Mm-hmm. That's a, a goal in my whole career. It doesn't have to happen this yeah. year. It doesn't have, have to happen in five years, but like at some point that's a goal. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to write a book at some point, but that's another like wet back burner kind of long-term goal. Um, I don't know what it would be about. I want it to be the right project at the right time. But I think that would be really fun and interesting and would feel great to accomplish. Um, but other than that, you know, my as my career has evolved, 
my ambition has both scaled up and scaled down in ways that I would not have expected. They've scaled back in the sense that I realized at a certain point, I did not want the kind of job where I'm like on call 24 seven. I don't want the kind of job where someone's like, this happened. Now we have to respond immediately. And you're working from seven in the morning until 10 o'clock at night or whatever it is Mm -hmm. off and on, but still like, I don't want a job like that. I like having a personal life. I like having downtime. And there are certain jobs I used to think I wanted, like an editor in chief of a magazine, let's say. And now I'm like, eh, I'm good. (laughs) So there's some- your whole life, right? That's a consuming Totally. And you're a, and you're a figurehead, and I'm just kind of like, I don't think I want to be a figurehead. That, that feels like a little too much pressure, a little too much visibility. Yeah. I want to have like some private citizen life that I can just go about without people like bugging me. Um, mm-hmm. So in that way, I feel like it has scaled down, but it has also scaled up in the sense that I have a much broader definition of like where my career could go from here in a way that... I used to be like, okay, I want to work at a magazine. I want to be an editor in New York. And like, that's the goal. And now I'm sort of like, well, I'm a copy director. I'm not really an editor. Um, And then I'm also doing this like deputy stuff, which is much more admin operations, which is never was really Mm -hmm. what I thought I wanted to do, but I'm good at it and I like it and it's stable, which in the publishing world counts for a lot. I don't know how stable Mm -hmm. it is, but it feels more stable. Um, just because I'm, I'm doing a job that it's not like there are like 15 people doing the same job. And if layoffs come, it's like, oh, well, we just have to pick five people to lay off. Like that, that doesn't feel as much of a risk these days. Um, but as I think about the future and like uh, what kinds of jobs I would want, it feels much broader now. And I attribute that to the experiences I've had in the past couple of years doing things I was not necessarily expecting, but liking it seeing the way it gives me a decent work-life balance that I didn't know was so important to me until I had it. And I was like, oh, I don't want to lose that. Um, So I think the future is sort of like, Mm -hmm. I'm not someone who has like a five-year plan or a 10-year plan, but I am someone who often thinks about like, what are cool future projects I could do? What are um, a couple concrete goals Mm -hmm. to have, like like the publishing in The New Yorker or writing a book? that I can always just sort of like have hovering in, in, in my peripheral vision to focus on if I need a little mm-hmm. more direction, things like that. As you reflect back on what you've done already or even just on a week-to-week basis, when do you feel like, oh, I accomplished a lot there. I feel really successful. I feel really connected to the work that I put out what's contributed to you feeling successful in what you've done? Well, one like just kind of fun little thing I do is if I get an email with some praise, I have a little um, label in my personal email inbox called nice things. And I'll like forward work email to it. It's really sweet. Mm -hmm. I started doing it my first job out of college because I think when I was like leaving that job to move to New York, my boss at the time, the editor-in-chief of the magazine, like wrote a really nice kind of departure email being like, oh, Grace has given her resignation, like whatever. It was like a nice little note. And I knew that I would want to keep that. And so I forwarded to my personal email, labeled it nice things. 
And I've done that for various other like nice little pats on the back that I've gotten. I don't really go back and read them hardly ever, but I know they're there. And every now and then, if I feel like a little insecure, like imposter syndrome or directionless or whatever, even if I don't read them, it's like, oh yeah, no, I'm good at this. Like I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not like completely mistaken in my chosen field. Like, you know, I, I at least sometimes do an okay enough job that someone has said a nice thing. Um, so I feel successful when I get notes like that. And Mm -hmm. I feel proud of myself that someone, you know, has taken the time to write something like that. And I try to remember that people appreciate those things. We all do. So Mm -hmm. I, I want to be better about writing those kinds of emails for other people too. Um, Mm -hmm. but the other ways that I feel successful is if like a busy week has ended, let's say, or even just a busy day and a lot of things happened, but like you look at that to-do list and you're like, dang, I checked everything off. I did it. And there's something about the whole flow state concept of like when you're just in the zone, you're busy, but you're getting everything done. You don't have a lot of time to do your specific tasks. So you just do them like as they come up versus like if you have a whole week to do a simple task, you'll wait till the you know last hour of the last day to do it because you know it only takes an hour or at least I do <laughs> as a procrastinator. That's kind of how my brain works. Um, but if I have a really busy full day and I have to get things done in rapid succession and then I do get them done in rapid succession, that feels really good. Yeah, I definitely relate there. Is there something that you wish you knew earlier in your career that you've learned along the way? I went through a bit of a career crisis in 2019 and I was Mm -hmm. like, screw journalism, screw publishing. It's never going to work for me. I'm not getting to where I want to be. Um, the salaries aren't high enough. It's all about who you know. And I'm from the Midwest and I don't have the connections, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, maybe I'll go to law school and maybe I'll pivot and work in tech. And I talked to a lot of people in those industries, but also in some realm of publishing. And I was just like, you know, woe is me. This isn't working. What do you think about this pivot? Blah, blah, blah. And through those conversations, I kind of came around to the fact that like, those other things aren't a good fit for me. What I'm doing is, and I'm so close to breaking through to where like it actually is working that I should just keep Mm -hmm. trying. And that was really great advice. And eventually, I think probably later that year, I got a promotion at Condé, which came with a nice salary increase, came with more stability. And since then, I've gotten more of both of those things in terms of like more upward mobility And in terms of advice to like my former self, what I wish I would have known is like to just keep going. Like it's okay that it it gets frustrating, but there is something to be said for like, if you're, if you're working hard, you're working smart, you're making connections, you're taking advantage of those connections and you're like nice and dependable (laughs) and people Mm -hmm. enjoy working with you and want to see you succeed. um, Then like, keep trying. I think if something really is not working out, it's never, you know, it's totally okay to make a huge pivot and to start over or to make a big necessary change. And I was prepared to do that. Um, But it's also like, you know, don't throw it all out just because you're a little frustrated that it hasn't totally clicked yet. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of industries are like this. It just takes time and you have to do 
some kind of bullshit work that you might not love and that you think you're underpaid for. You probably are underpaid for it. Um, but at a certain point, if you love it and it's like, it is what you want to be doing, which was the truth for me is like it, I, I, I do love magazine publishing and I love journalism. So I had someone say to me, like, why would you turn away from that? Mm-hmm. You're this close to breaking through. Like you're on the path, you're doing it. No, it's not perfect right now, but like, just keep trying a little harder. And like, this person was like, I promise it's, it's going to work out. And like three months later, I got a huge unexpected promotion because someone moved away and his job was vacant and, and they thought I would do a good job. Um, so yeah, just keep, keep plugging away. Yeah, I think that's such good advice because I think so many people do get to the point in their careers where they have been doing something for a while. They're not where they would hope to be and they do have this crisis of career and identity and they start exploring other things. And I think the typical story that we hear is of a big pivot, but in that self-reflection and discovery and those conversations, the answer could just be that you need to keep doing what you're doing and keep your head down and push through. And there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you will get to a place where you want to be in this industry that you have always been passionate about. Um, You just might need to give it a little bit more time. I think that's such good advice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm regurgitating the advice I got. It it made such a difference for me. So I I would be happy if anyone else (laughs) can listen to that and be a little comforted by it. And I think it also helps to have that validation from someone who has been there, especially somebody in your industry who has pushed through the highs and lows and gotten past the valley that you may be experiencing, someone that can validate everything that you're thinking through. And, you know, there are pros and cons to everything. So just to validate that, you know, there are cons, but the pros may outweigh those for someone that has this deep ingrained passion for the overall work or for the overall industry. It is helpful to have that person to help you push through. Totally. I mean, I, I applied for jobs at Condé Nast like three times before I got mm-hmm. my first job that got me in the door. But all those applications that did not lead to job offers, I met people, I met people in HR. It made it possible so that when I saw a job listing that seemed like a good fit, I had a personal email of someone in HR to reach out to and be like, I'm interested. And like, we got on the phone that day. I talked to someone the next day. I went in for an interview the next day and like, I got the job. That would not have happened had I not Mm -hmm. gotten those rejections three previous times. Yeah. I think that also shows the value of building relationships and not burning bridges because after the first or even the second rejection, you could have walked away and felt really burned and not wanted to even engage with the organization that had turned you away twice, but you did just keep persevering and those relationships and all of those conversations that you had previously with the folks in HR, with the other hiring managers, it helped you to land the eventual job and to grow from there. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was a journey, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for this conversation, Grace. I learned so much. It was so interesting going through your whole journey and hearing more about what you have achieved over the years and how you think about your future. So thanks for the conversation. Thanks for having me, Courtney. Thank you for your wise and insightful questions. Go to unchartedcareers.com if you're interested in one-on-one career coaching or are looking to learn more about uncharted careers and my coaching approach. Thanks for listening.